9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am in rainy New Jersey, not too far, by the way, from where Donald Trump camps out in Bedminster, New Jersey, causing a lot of excitement here among all the cows and horses. Um, Not too far away, uh, uh, in sort of cosmic terms, uh, is David Sanger up in Vermont uh, by the shores of Lake Sanger. Uh, and the familial... <laughs> like to sing her. I like the, that. the difference here, David, is that, that when people go and look at your cows and stuff, they're driving around in BMWs, and here we just use beaten-up 1970s red pickup trucks. Yeah, we're, no, the, was... we're among the real people here. <laughs> yeah, I know. The opioid Okay, crisis. I like the distinction of David being among the real people, which subliminally suggests he's actually not one yeah more than more than more than subliminally um because he goes up to the country store and says see my red pickup that's harvard crimson pickup (laughs) (laughs) off off in london england we have Corey shockey you're in london england right i'm actually in edinburgh scotland a super charming place Wow, that's very cool. That's very cool. And yes, then somewhere... Edinburgh some, Festival and Fringe Festival. Oh, you're at the Fringe Festival? Yeah, it's yeah. fabulous. Because well, as you know, everybody who works at S lives on the Fringe. Yeah, well... <laughs> um, right. Um, now, I will sort of them as more mainstream. And then, uh, out where America was one, not too far from... You know, the hole in the wall and and the origins of the Sundance Kid is Rosa Brooks somewhere. Hi, David. On a ranch in Wyoming doing (laughs) wrangling cattle. What what are you doing, Rosa? She joined Um, the hole in the wall gang. I'm really busy not writing my book. It takes a lot of time. It takes up almost all hours of all days not writing my book. (laughs) Um, um, you know, I, I punctuate it with brief, brief periods of writing my book, but, but I, I also, I'm going to go to the rodeo. Oh, really? As a, as a contestant? Oh, excellent. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, wrangle bulls or whatever it is that you do. I haven't been to a rodeo since I was a kid. Um, and I'm very excited about this. I was at a rodeo in a place called Cave Creek, Colorado, like a couple of months ago. And, and, and or was it Arizona? It was someplace like that. And I got to tell <laughs> you, states. it was some state. And it was like, oh my God, this was like Trumpville. I mean, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it was like so right wing to its core that, you know, I mean, it, it was almost sort of part of the theatrics of the place. Well, the reason that Rosa is in Wyoming is that she's trying to find out if the true Republican Party is the Dick Cheney Party, which, of course, comes from Wyoming, 
or whether it's the Donald Trump party or whether well, they're the I same did, person. I did, Have you ever David, seen them in look, the same place at the same time? I haven't, <laughs> but I did I did look at that great, um, I think it was the New York Times, David, your, your publication that had this wonderfully detailed electoral map so you could see you know, precinct by precinct what the vote was all over the country. And I did determine that the little town I'm in went about 84% for Trump. So I, I think I, I'm going to try to avoid political conversations with my, my neighbors <laughs> for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> but I am so looking forward to the passage in Rosa's forthcoming book, which I know she is making good progress on, even though she's not admitting it, because she's so amazingly prolific and profound. I am super... I am super looking forward to the passage in your new book, which talks about rodeo clowns and makes a simile about the Trump administration. <laughs> or about Rothkopf. Yeah. I uh, so I'm, I'm, looking forward, I'm looking forward to the article in the local Wyoming paper about how a subversive broadcast called Deep State Radio was secretly being broadcast <laughs> from there right down. Right <laughs> from Grable, Wyoming. Leading to a house-to-house search in Wyoming. <laughs> well, they'll never find Rosa because she's actually working in an abandoned black helicopter, which is <laughs> kept, <laughs> which, as Donald Trump knows, is actually invisible. Just like all those stealth planes are like those invisible. F-35s. You can't see them. That's why <laughs> they're so good. The enemy can't see them. Yeah. Do you think he really believes that? Because he said it at Fort Drum again. He says I it all the time. I do think he believes it. I think he believes whatever he's saying when he's saying it. Yeah. Well, there's it, probably that. Now, now before we get into this, and we have been bantering here a bit, but it's okay. Um, David, we've missed you the past few weeks, and I understand you've been out in the wilderness, um, you know, undoubtedly doing some kind of spiritual journey. <laughs> in your crimson truck. Yeah. And, and, and I was just wondering if you... reviews of your book. They've been amazing. <laughs> it's, it's, right. Although the trip was planned when he wasn't sure, I guess. But, <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> I thought I might have to disappear. <laughs> <laughs> but but to just give us give us a highlight of your journey, you battling a grizzly bear or whatever it was that you did out there, wearing the high, you know, waist high rubber pants you like to wear. <laughs> yeah, I um, my wife and I took joined a group of friends and went down uh, covering eighty five miles of the middle fork of the Salmon River in Idaho. And it's in canyons so deep and roadless areas so remote that there is no Wi-Fi, there is no cell phone, and yes, there is no deep state radio. Can you imagine a corner of the United States from which you cannot what? you cannot listen to deep state radio? Dude, you just weren't trying hard enough. No, um, clearly, clearly, clearly not. Uh, and it was unbelievably beautiful. And what's great about it is because it's so hard to get to, you run into very few people and you can pull over your kayaks or your rafts and hike up to these um, fabulous uh, drawings that the Native Americans were doing some 4,000 years ago and some just 100 years ago before they were driven from the area. Um, 
but it was a, a really interesting uh, group. We had no bear encounters, but we did have uh, a lot of um, longhorn sheep encounters. Well, that's really not like a great old West story. There well, we were wrestling, a, wrestling a longhorn sheep to the ground. <laughs> There we were, surrounded by lamb chops on the hook. <laughs> we ate nicely, I would say, but we we stayed away from. We, we did not eat any longhorn longhorn sheep. You'll be glad to know. All uh, right. The, well, and the fishing's good. Yeah, well, I I assumed that's why you were out there. All right. So let's let's just sort of go through some of the recent news, and maybe I'll start with you, Rosa, because this one just sort of stuck in my craw a bit, and, and, I, and I thought you might have a view on it. And that is uh, some news of the day that we we're recording this, in which Peter Strzok of the FBI has gotten fired. And of course, Peter Strzok did not use great judgment in tweeting out all the stuff that he tweeted out, but there is also no evidence that Peter Strzok actually let his political views influence his behavior. And it seems to me that firing people for uh, having political views is a dangerous precedent uh, with regard to law enforcement uh, and the country more broadly. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Uh, you know, it, it's a yes. I mean, I mean, in, it, as a general principle, absolutely, the, the career civil servants uh, are supposed to have. Uh, the ability to have whatever political views they want to have, provided it doesn't affect their job performance, and um, it would be it would be it has been. We've seen this in in other high profile firings. Um, uh, a bad precedent. Um, it continues to be a bad precedent to fire people in circumstances that, whether rightly or wrongly, certainly look like they're being fired for their political views. That being said. Um, as as with Comey, as with McCabe, uh, you know he did some things he shouldn't have done. No question about it. Um, the the Inspector General's report that came out in June didn't recommend firing, but did recommend uh, demotion and a period of suspension. The FBI's deputy director obviously decided to go further and actually fire him. Um, I, 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 I'm a little reluctant to turn this guy into some kind of a hero, uh, or indeed even some kind of victim of a political persecution, given that there's still information that we don't have. Um, so, so while I, David, I guess I agree with you on the general principle that, that combined with McCabe's firing, combined with Comey's firing, uh, these are all guys who did some things wrong, but it certainly at least creates the appearance of political vindictiveness on the part of the Trump administration. I, I, I do think that even though in each individual case, maybe there were circumstances that justified the firing, that the overall message it's going to send to people within the FBI and presumably other federal agencies uh, is, is nonetheless a pretty strong message. Be really careful uh, about what you say or expressing your political views, because if your political views are anything other than Trump is amazing, uh, you could find yourself retaliated against. Um, it's in, Indeed, it seems to be that there's a pattern emerging there. Corey, do you have a view on this? I mean, Rosa says it creates the appearance, but it, it seems to create more than the appearance. People are getting canned because... They hung out with the wrong people, supported the wrong campaign, even though there's no evidence at all 
that it affected anybody's performance. Uh, so please forgive me being slow on the uptake, but I am on vacation and watching comedians do stand-up in Edinburgh. Um, did the FBI fire him? That is, yes. the independent head of the FBI make a judgment that uh, it was unprofessional of an FBI officer investigating Russian interference to be on his work phone having texts back and forth about one particular campaign. So I confess I'm quite um, conflicted about this and about Comey because I realize that we are in a moment of such political craziness that for career law enforcement officers to make choices about um, the Procrustean bed they are stretched out on, whether they want to be stretched to the right length or be cut down to the right size, is genuinely hard and it's not clear to me there's a right answer. But it does, uh, and, and I hate the way the president is politicizing all sorts of politically neutral parts of the American government the military, uh, as he did once again at Fort Drum, uh, the FBI, civil servants. But I also think, man, if you're running an FBI investigation into Russian collusion with a political campaign, to be using your work phone to text about that campaign in a political way and is among other things dumb. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it's it's clearly dumb. But you know, uh, the you know other things that people have been accused of is having their wife donate to a political campaign or run a fundraiser. Or, you know, David, I am by no means defending the way the White House has been going after the intelligence agencies, going after the FBI, trying to muddy the waters enough that the president's disgraceful and probably illegal and certainly corrosive to the norms and practices of American democracy. All of the ways in which the president's behavior is corrosive, I share your views on. But I also wish folks wouldn't, would be, would exercise a little more professional discipline in their own right to not make it easy. Because after all, it sounds like the president didn't fire him. The head of the FBI fired him. Well, we don't. We don't. But um, please first of all, the president, wrong. the president has been uh, conducting a major public campaign against Strzok, against McCabe, against, you know, or against these other people, against obviously Comey and so forth, other people. And so I th there is. I absolutely agree with you. There is no mistaking the president's point of view on this. And because the Congress has supported a lot of this, you, you have to believe that even a you know well-intentioned person uh, uh, like Ray, who's running the FBI, is going to say, well, if we're going to be above reproach, then we can't even have people like this around here. And that may be well-intentioned because they want to restore the reputation, but the reputation has been damaged by uh, attacks that are unfair, even if even if there have been some elements wrong. David, do you have a point of view on this? Yeah, so um, 
Two things. First, he was fired ostensibly for the poor judgment as described by Rosa and Corey of those texts over a, over a um, FBI phone. And then he was also accused of sending a highly sensitive search warrant to his own personal email account. Now, um, the hilarious part about this is that's exactly the th- kind of thing that Hillary Clinton has been uh, accused of doing by having her uh, personal email account. Um, but if I was Mr. Strzok and I was looking to file a wrongful dismissal suit against the federal government, I guess the first thing that I would uh, do would be enter Donald Trump's tweet from just uh, a couple of hours after uh, Mr. Strzok was fired. He wrote, Agent Peter Strzok was just fired by the FBI, finally. The list of bad players in the FBI and the DOJ gets longer and longer. Based on the fact that Strzok was in charge of the witch hunt, will it be dropped? It is a total hoax. No collusion, no obstruction. I just fight back. (laughs) And then his next one said, delivered just five minutes later, just fired Agent Strzok, formerly of the FBI. It sounds like he just fired him, right? This is from Donald J. Trump, at real Donald J. Trump. Just fired Agent Strzok, formerly of the FBI was in charge of the crooked Hillary sham investigation. It was a total fraud on the American public and should be properly redone. Now, you could read, if if his uh, hyphenation had been correct, he could have just been using, just fired Agent Strzok to say, Agent Strzok is the man who was just fired, not necessarily that he was just firing him. But what do these two together add up to? That to President Trump, Strzok is just another part of this investigation that he's trying to kill because he considers it to be illegitimate and going after something that's got no evidentiary base. And so if you're if you're struck, I think you could probably make a decent case that had this been independent of the president's pressure, he might have gotten a reprimand, he might have gotten suspended, but he probably wouldn't have gotten fired. And that'll be a pretty interesting case if that comes to pass. Um, it will be an interesting case. Now, Rosa, I'd like to take it to the next step because this is deep state radio and I want to deal with the deep state. And, and, you know, I mean, clearly Strzok screwed up a little bit, um, but, uh, the deep state still has profound capabilities. And I think one of the things that the deep state (laughs) did that was really brilliant was somehow placing Omarosa into the apprentice years ago. So that she I know it was so far sighted. David, far-sighted. was that your idea? I can't. I can neither confirm nor deny. But there she was, getting fired three times and then getting hired by the White House, and apparently walking around the White House, recording stuff all the time. Now apparently right, in, the, in the sit room. In the sit room, but but also <laughs> apparently she recorded the president. She recorded Ivanka. She recorded Jared. Um, she's got all the, all these. All I can say there. is that all these people deserve each other. And they were absolutely. Reco- this is an Elmore Leonard novel. And she recorded in the sit room. My recollection is when you walk into the sit room, there's that little collection of cubbies where you're supposed to right. put your cell phone. There, there That's is. Great. I'm actually quite shocked by that because because in addition, to, I mean, I mean, it, in that sense, it is an honor system. You know, nobody searches you and and you know, removes your concealed cell phones from your body. 
Um, that so, may end you know, tomorrow. <laughs> but, but, but that being said, there are plenty of buildings within our national security establishment, including parts of the Pentagon, including many parts of the intel community, where they have devices, which technologically I don't understand, but I, I believe them, that scan for cell phones and stuff like that. And so you can get caught if you happen to have a phone. And people get caught all the time, usually usually when they've just forgotten, you know, that they, they forgot that their phone was stuffed in the bottom of their backpack. And it goes bing, bing, bing. And the reason that they don't want us to take cell phones in there is not so that we can't record conversations. It's so that enemies cannot dial in them, frequencies. Sure. Well, that's like, the thing. I mean, that's why it is shocking to me is that... This a serious that security breach. She was Wait. able to do that. Well, yeah, except what if she wasn't using her cell phone? But, well, no, but I mean, any any electronic device that admits, uh, admits whatever these devices omit, uh, uh, emit, rather, um, they omit many things, um, um, you know, can be detected using these kinds of scanners. And I would have, until now, I would have taken it for granted that the sit room would be one of the places where, you know, the way they, you, you, the, they keep you honest by you will get caught if you have a device that is emitting whatever they're emitting, uh, electromagnetic radiation. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea how this stuff works. But, but anyway, apparently sure. they you're, you're the one, you're words. the one sitting at a I am the helicopter. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm just feigning ignorance just to throw you all off the scent. But, but, um, you know what I mean? Uh, it, it, it does seem to highlight, uh, a rather significant security uh, weakness in the White House Situation Room. Uh, yeah, but the, by the way, there were some reports that she used a pen-like recording device as opposed to a phone um, to do the matter. recording. It shouldn't matter. I don't. I mean, I those get, are I, they're detectable. I I I I do get I do get it, but David, uh, you're I mean, our cyber expert, right? Yeah, how are you recording this phone call, David? You know, since it's since it's a public <laughs> deep state radio thing, I don't bother to, to to do that. I I just you know when when Corey uh, and and Rosa get together deep in the silo to plot the the overthrow of the current state, that's the only stuff I try to record. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, so so sisterhood the, the, conversations are that's super right. interesting. You're right. The the, uh, the detection stuff would help if there was an emission from a cell phone like you know because it's pinging out or or seeking a cell phone tower i'm not sure whether a recording device would itself set it off but it just my reading me. my reading of thrillers david tells oh, me that it should yes it yes. should well, okay well yes. whatever whatever it should or shouldn't what's it really tell you it tells you that the current <laughs> white house is such a snake pit that everybody's either recording each other or suspecting that the other person is. Has this been your impression covering this world for, for a while now? Yes, but only since the first day after inauguration. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's certainly not getting better or improved by this situation. Uh, you, when, 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 no. One has to assume. Yeah, the the on. the other thing that is kind of amazing, um, again not surprising um, for those of us who've been paying attention since the first day of this administration, um, is uh, you know Trump just also tweeted out another deranged tweet about Omarosa, 
in which he essentially says she's she's vicious, not not smart, um, and was hired only because she praised me a lot. <laughs> which yeah. you know, needless to say, I, I guess that's the hiring criteria. It's fine to be vicious and stupid, um, but you're good as long as you keep praising Trump. But that Rosa, it's it's not accurate. it's not simply that it's. It's also the way he thinks about allies. When we asked him at one point during the campaign, why do you say all these nice things about Vladimir Putin? It's because he praises me a lot. So, yeah. you know, praising praising him a lot has kept Vladimir Putin on the good list and kept Amorosa employed as long as she was. I'm sorry, Corey, yeah. I interrupted you there. <laughs> no, I was just <laughs> piling on on the exact same point. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't doubt that like, she is vicious. I, I have no doubt in my mind that she is vicious. And indeed, going back to our discussion of uh, Peter Strzok, Jim, Co- Jim Comey, etc., I, I do think it is really, really important. This, this should go without saying, but it, it doesn't seem to entirely go without saying. It, it is really, really important for the anti-Trump contingent not to turn not to lionize uh, or or turn into heroes, people like Omarosa or you know that that just because they're now doing things that are convenient from our point of view, like denouncing Trump and saying you know revealing information that is embarrassing to Trump, uh, these are not nice. This, she is not a nice person. Absolutely, this I feel like in a weird way this administration is going to end like Reservoir Dogs, and. Wow, you've and... gone from Elmore Leonard, which has vaguely amusing overtones to it, to Reservoir Dogs, which is, you know, just, just you know, harsh. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, Rosa's right. Vicious and evil is sort of the calling card of the people closest to the president of the United States. I don't, I don't know, David. I kind of I think the Elmore Leonard part is right. I mean, they are vicious, but they're also ridiculous. Well, there is a a level in the backbiting, particularly with the president said in his tweets about Amorosa, that perhaps it wasn't presidential of him to say this. And then he goes on to denounce her. Well, you know, this, this reminds me of the one of my favorite Twitter sites these days, which takes the president's tweets and places them on the stationery that says the White House, Washington, and marks them up as if they were an official statement from the president. And what does that simply do? <laughs> it, 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 they're great to read these tweets as if they, they came out. But right. now the official statements have come to actually resemble the tweets. So the other day, when they put sanctions on Iran, the headline on the official statement was something along the lines of President Trump um, issues sanctions in response to horrible Iran agreement. You know? Yeah, well, <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, it was then the last line of the official uh, White House document was a line of crying emoji faces. That was <laughs> so, so we have some, we have somehow, oh, dear. we have somehow man- managed to, to merge not only the policy and the political, that's old news, but the policy, the political and the emotional, which is, I didn't like what Stroke said. So, um, you know, he got fired for being involved in a witch hunt. I didn't. I liked Amorosa when she was complimentary of me, but when she turned uncomplimentary of me, she's a loser. So, you know, we we've hit a certain point of low comedy here. Yeah, no, and the, it, I think the comedy is going to get worse. But 
Uh, Rosa, there's another legal point here that I'd like to get at, which is uh, one of the things... Uh, David, I cannot help you with your parking tickets. Oh, shit. I was, <laughs> I was, counting, I was counting on <laughs> Officer Brooks to the rescue. But one, of, one of the things that I was struck by in one of the president's tweets about this was that he said, oh, and by the way, Omarosa has already signed a non-disclosure agreement. Omarosa had asserted that she was going to get paid $1,500 to work for the campaign, or she was offered that, and that that would have required a I don't signing. Know, it was 15000 15, per month. Excuse me. To not right, $15,000. Excuse me, $15,000 a month. But, and the, but there was a very... I, I'm willing to actually work for $15,000 a month um, if I don't have to do anything. By, just by the way, if anybody out there wants to start sending the checks. Okay, well, we'll keep that in mind within the deep state. But, um, but here's the thing. Remember, President, David's already got that job. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I, I wish. <laughs> those, were the, those were the good old days, David. Those, you know, when you're building a little company like this, you actually have to work every day. But um, the, the, the president implied that while she was at the White House, as a White House employee, she had signed a non-disclosure agreement, which strikes me as inconsistent with being a public official and problematic. Well, funny you should mention that, because we were having this conversation before the broadcast. Oh, that's and right. I, yeah, and, and, and the, the most remarkable thing to me is the president frequently had people sign non-disclosure agreements when he was uh, running his own development company in New York. But this is yet another example of how he seemed to have confused running a private company with having employees who are actually working for the taxpayers of the United States. And I can't imagine how any non-disclosure agreement that somebody uh, signed would be enforceable when you would think that federal law would uh, would rule here, where the issue would be you couldn't disclose classified information, you could disclose unclassified information that come from your history there, and think how many presidential memoirs, including, say, Bob Gates's recent one, or George Bush's, or Dick Cheney's, or the forthcoming Obama memoir, or any of the people in the Obama administration who've already written books. Um, how that would be affected if basically you forced everybody to sign non-disclosure agreements. We'd have, we'd have no history. Well, it's against the law. I mean, I mean, there's laws yeah. that say, you know, this stuff has to be public because it's, it's public. Um, uh, it just, you know, again, it's, it's, it's Trump somehow thinks he can control this stuff. Uh, and I vividly recall uh, my outbrief from the NSC lawyers when I left uh, and them imploring me that there was no legal way they could prevent me from uh, telling all sorts of confidentialities about the Bush White House. But would I please not do so? <laughs> well, so at least if there at was least law, they, <laughs> uh, the NSC lawyers didn't I, know it in the year of our Lord two thousand five. At I'll, least I'll at, tell you at, though, David. I mean, I, I mean, you, you yes. When it comes to information that is not actually classified, um, you know, far from requiring people to sign non disclosures, we should be saying, hey, it's in the public interest for people to be able to talk about. 
uh, uh, what goes on in the White House because it's the people of the United States of America who pay for all those people to be sitting around in the White House. Um, but that that being said, I, I they're just if we're on this topic, here here's something that I think we should be concerned about, um, which is because and, and in some ways makes it surprising that some of these memoirs have have made it out um, um, because our government so wildly overclassifies information. Um, there's an enormous amount of stuff that should be in the public domain that isn't in the public domain because it gets inappropriately classified. Uh, and I, I am sure all of us who've worked in government can think of examples of people who knowingly, despite the fact that this is very clearly against the law, classified things not because they really related to uh, threats to the United States if revealed, but classified them simply because they would be politically embarrassing if they were revealed, that happens all the time. And, and even worse, you know, if you have been in a position where you have been uh, cleared to receive highly classified information um, at, in the intelligence community, for instance, or at the Pentagon, um, you are required prior to publishing, say, a book to have the powers that be um, go through that manuscript to scrub it for any potentially uh, classified material that you might have put into it. This but not embarrassing itself, information. But not embarrassing information. And you can appeal it if they try to confuse one with the other. Yes, but but the way it works in practice, uh, and, and this is something that sooner or later somebody's going to challenge in court, probably successfully, um, you know, there, there is a general First Amendment prohibition on so-called prior restraint. You know, you're not supposed to prevent people from saying stuff before they've even had a chance to say it. Um, but, but essentially what can happen and what has happened in many circumstances um, is that the classification review process will sit on books and so on for a very long period of time supposedly reviewing them, thus rendering them irrelevant uh, without being able to point to anything specific that's classified about it. Uh, this is actually something that, that my uh, friends and colleagues, uh, Ona Hathaway and Jack Goldsmith, both veterans of uh, the DOD general counsel's office at different times and now own is at Yale Law School and, and uh, Jack is at Harvard Law School have written about extensively. Um, I had the same experience myself. My, my last book got stuck in- I, I hear I hear typing in the background and I can only imagine, it's David Sanger writing his lawyer as you speak. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm getting my- I'm getting my pre-clearance review here. Oh, wait a minute. I'm a journalist. I don't need to go through that. But, but you know, it, it, it will hold up manuscripts inexplicably for months and years. That happened to my own. During the time it was supposedly being cleared, I discovered that PDF copies of it were being circulated uh, around the Pentagon, not, not to people who were involved in the uh, pre-publication review, but just people saying, oh, you might be interested in this book that Rose is writing. Um, you know, all kinds of inappropriate things happen. It's completely opaque. It's very, very difficult to challenge. Um, when I finally kicked and screamed about my own book and got the DOD deputy general counsel involved, uh, it broke free about two days later um, at the end of the day. But, you know, I think because I had, I had been very careful when I wrote it, obviously didn't want to reveal classified information. They blacked out about four things. And the only thing I can tell you about the things that they blacked out is that it, it basically struck me that somebody had sat on this thing for a year and then suddenly went, oh shit, we're supposed to justify why we're sitting on it and picked a few things at random uh, to black out. They were completely irrelevant and things that were discussed elsewhere in the book, not blacked out. So, so we do in fact 
well, well, technically a sort of non-disclosure of non-classified information is and should be improper, the executive branch does have all kinds of ways of achieving, achieving the same results by asserting that material might be classified, even if it's not, and by essentially sitting on it for long periods of time to effectively squelch it. Well, you know, if you were a clever author, like, you know, perhaps somebody else on this call, you would have written about the secret activities of the Martin Van Buren administration and, you know, therefore avoided all of these problems, right? Tread you know, cl- lightly, David, for you tread upon my <laughs> dreams. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, you're... We, when did you know? When did this classification start? Corey? Well, I mean, it, it started about when you were in the Martin Van Buren administration, David. But, but you know, you've you've actually you've actually raised a a a point in here that is beyond the obligations that go to federal employees who have access to to this kind of information, but gets to a question which Rosa rightly raised about overclassification. So, so much is classified because it is potentially embarrassing, it would be uncomfortable and so forth. And so when people ask me, well, why do we publish in the New York Times and the Washington Post and other information that is classified? My answer is we're always willing to have discussion about whether or not it would actually be harmful to the United States and we'll go out of our way not to publish something that will cost a life or threaten an operation. But because we know that so much that is classified is classified to avoid embarrassment, we won't simply not publish it because it's classified. During the WikiLeaks material, when we were in negotiations with the State Department, uh, they wanted us to not run uh, a reference that the king of Saudi Arabia made about how the United States should cut off the head of the snake, meaning attack Iran. Oh, and I remember that. Remember this one? And the best mm-hmm. argument that the government could come up with was it would be embarrassing to the king. And we said, well, you know, the king's kind of a big boy and he can kind of take care of himself. <laughs> you didn't realize that it was your job at the New York Times to preserve uh, the king right. from embarrassment. <laughs> and, you know, the very fact that that got classified, but there was other great st- I mean, they have classified things down to. I, you know, I exaggerate here, but basically the menu for the State Department cafeteria. No, they they regularly classified newspaper articles that you could easily Google the same day they appeared uh, that had been converted into cables and sent into the State Department. So and then marked secret. Right. Uh, well, we even did, no, it's a, already been published. classification is kind of a pathology within the United States government. And it cuts a couple of ways. One of the ways that you're talking about, which is overclassification um, is is a problem. And I, I used to have a company that dealt in the business of open source intelligence gathering. We'd gather stuff from the internet. And I recall going once into Paycom, doing a presentation on it. I think I mentioned this a long while ago on the show. And having an admiral sit, you know, we had a picture that we had downloaded from the internet of a North Korean missile location. And he'd said, take that down. This is non-classified briefing. And we said, uh, well, this was from a public site, and and the guy said, take it down anyway. You know, in other words, there's this kind of paranoia about it. But the flip side is that within the United States government, there's a tendency not to value information that isn't classified. In other words, classified information is seen yeah. as having more value. 
Um, I, I had a I had a senior colleague when I was at the State Department years ago who would routinely classify things top secret, even though they probably shouldn't even have been classified secret, much less top secret. And when I raised him with this at one point, I said, I, you know, why are you classifying this top secret? It doesn't, he said, he said, you know, if you don't put top secret on top of this memo, nobody's ever going to read it. Yeah, well, that's right. And, you know, <laughs> interestingly, I had a conversation with Tony Zinni, who was the commanding general of CENTCOM at one point, and he was interested in this. And he looked at the information that he was getting and uh, he he discovered that of the classified information he was getting, about 80% of it was easily available via open sources. And of the remaining 20%, if you knew what you were looking for, you could have found another uh, 80% of that via open sources, which meant only about 4% of what is classified or what he was getting that was well, classified. But there was always, was actually always this, sort of, this sort of Orwellian uh, argument that was made to explain this, David. Um, and the way, the way it was always explained to me was, well, it is true that this piece of information, um, you could have gotten this piece of information from unclassified sources from the New York Times or you know, just by Googling or whatever. However, once you put it into a government document, that implies that this information is true. And the truth of the information, the fact that we believe it to be true, is what needs to be kept secret. Or so even worse, that it's of interest to the U.S. government, an argument that's been you know, used to me before. Um, this is pretty widespread. And David, to your point, you know, we get regularly unclassified uh, one meter or below uh, imagery of the North Korean and um, Iranian nuclear sites, right? And we have photo interpreters who we rely on to to go do the for, photo for some of the For some of the deep state folks who don't know what you mean, by one meter, you're talking about the resolution, the resolution of the satellite right. imagery, right? Yeah, it can see things one meter and larger, and uh, which 10 or 15 years ago, only spy satellites would have been able to, to go do. Um, but, uh, and this is how, if you go on, Google Earth, you can see, you know, blow up photographs of your house and discover that, you know, you you left your charcoal grill out in the backyard. Um, but frequently when I send these over to government officials and I say, I want to talk about this change that we're seeing in the um, North Korean nuclear program, they say, I can't discuss it because even though you've got it from a public source, if I discuss it confirms that we've seen the same information, maybe in a non-public way. Now, that's pretty convoluted, too. Corey, I want to give you the last word here. How do you fix it? Uh, I am not sure that the system is broken, uh, namely that everybody internal to the administration has incentives to overclassify things in order to prevent embarrassment, in order to keep top-notch journalists like David Sanger from holding them accountable. And people leak in order to, well, for a whole range of motives, among those motives are to ensure their government gets held accountable. So it feels to me like the natural tug of war between a government trying to operate confidentially and a rigorous free press insisting that that it's not going to work that way in American society. I'm not sure the system's broken. Well, I think let me let me suggest there are two ways where the system may well be broken. One is that overclassification 
has an expense to it. If if all these documents have to be treated in a certain way and 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 protected in a certain way, and there are billions and billions of documents, there there is an expense to that. But the other is the communications problems that it caused because you're not able to share the information as broadly as you might want to to be effective as an organization. And I guess, you know, to some extent, and I don't want to go on much beyond the length of this broadcast, but it makes me think, David, particularly in subjects such as those covered in your excellent and extremely well-reviewed book, um, that, that um, you know, when we, when, if you're going to manage a cyber defense, you have to do it with the private sector. And so you need communication back and forth, and that means you need to have stuff that isn't classified. That, that's right. And, I, you know, we've had cases in which utility executives were brought in and told about a Russian threat to, you know, or Russian code that was found in their utilities. And because the executives were cleared and the engineers weren't, they couldn't do anything with the data. Um, but that that takes you to the question of what do you do about it? And you mentioned that there's a cost to classifying. And while there is, it's an unseen cost. It's It's not a budget item. So here's my simple solution, and I realize this sounds oversimplified, but it's a, a concept that might get us to something better. Make every agency have to pay a cost for every page they classify. It's got to go against their budget so that if they're classifying a million pages, it's instead of buying X, Y, and Z or having this many more staff, because right now, there's no cost to anybody for just hitting that top secret stamp, as uh, Rosa pointed out. And if instead they, uh, the departments came to the conclusion that they should just classify a thousand pages of truly important data because it's too expensive to classify millions of pages, it might begin to change the system. Uh, excellent point. Uh, excellent discussion from Wyoming, Vermont, Edinburgh, and, of course, most exotically of all, New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> thank you to, 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 to all of you. Um, and, folks, we hope you'll join this same gang again for the next episode of Deep State Radio. And I, I do want to say um, a, a couple of things. One, uh, to those folks who set up the Deep State Radio book club rapidly <laughs> within two days following our last episode that is now there are hundreds of members to this book club uh well done keep it made up. me and so happy to see i i was delighted because there are you know three authors on right now with current books and rosa has a great book out there but i have another idea have the deep state radio book club do the pre-publication review for rosa's next book yes <laughs> yeah, right. And demand distribution of it. But um, yeah, well, we will we will do that. But I have to say it was great among them. And we're going to try to work them into the next big chapter in the life of Deep State Radio, which we will reveal more of in each of the following couple of weeks. But starting early in September, uh, DeepStateRadioNetwork.com will be live. You can get the podcast there, but you will also be able to get a lot more uh, content of different sorts. Uh, which is going to be extremely exciting and really bring together the Deep State Radio community in some new ways. And if you want information on that, all you have to do is go to deepstateradionetwork.com right now, and you can register, and we'll send you out emails and updates as they go. And I encourage you to do that, because um, there's going to be some 
uh, cool opportunities for early adapters. So go there, and we'll see you in the next episode of Deep State Radio. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.